This is Sean, and you are listening to Promise, a podcast showcasing the heroes of tomorrow. Every episode is an exploration on the idea of promise itself. Whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there, I speak with exceptional, purpose-driven people on their journeys to change the world. This week, I complete the conversation with Brianna McDonald, founder of The Care Co. A reminder, The Care Co. is building a SaaS solution for young people and their educators to build mental health literacy, strategies, and resilience at an early age. In part two, we chat about developing go-to-market strategies in this space, what adoption of the product could look like, the next steps for the company, dream partners at a global scale, values alignment within the team, and the multi-generational impacts if Brianna's hypotheses turn out to be true. Please enjoy the rest of my discussion with Brianna McDonald. Brianna McDonald, welcome back to the Promise Podcast. How are you today? I am so great. Thank you so much for having me. Just want to give the listeners a quick recap of where we left off previously. Although I highly recommend listening to the conversation so far, we finished up speaking about teachers being, I guess, the conduit for mental health literacy and strategies for children. You'd mentioned using the CareCo as a means to achieve scale for mental health education multiple times now. So I'd like to resume the conversation there. Maybe this is where your marketing background comes in. I've got a few questions that might be rolled up into one here. So firstly, how do you plan on rolling this out to schools? Secondly, it might be something that gets rolled out to schools, but what are you doing to ensure that it actually gets used? And thirdly, at least here in Australia, curriculums are different state by state. And if you move on to all of the other countries that you mentioned, curriculums are different country by country as well. And within those jurisdictions, again, plenty of difference. How do you navigate all of these things? <laughs> I know. It's a big ask, isn't it? <laughs> so first and foremost, in terms of entering the market, let's look at that first. It is good to point out, and great that you just said that, is sometimes that go-to-market strategy and uptake and adoption will differ first and foremost by country, absolutely, but also based off the education system or the end customer market we're looking at. In the CareCo specifically, our customers allude to school decision makers, right? Or the school itself. The end users are the young people, considering the customers first and foremost. Sometimes that will differ based off of the school model or the education system they work in. If you're looking at a Catholic school system, for example, Chances are that the decision-making process for them and what software is adopted, what resources are used or available to the school and used in the classroom, that decision-making process will not only include the school management team, but also possibly the local diocese, who has a lot of influence over the curriculum and the resources available to that school and so on and so forth. Likewise, you'll get an alternative education provider like Montessori, for example. That may be a single independent school. Or there could be a team that own a series of Montessori school locations, and they may decide on the software and resources available to their school at a top network level, make that purchase or buying decision, and then filter out those same resources to all of their schools. A private school, in the event where it's a high-fee, tuition-paying, independent school, this is certainly not a blanket statement, but they traditionally have the capacity and permissions in-house to make their own buying decisions about how that school operates, 
what the model looks like, what resources and softwares that school uses, et cetera. And then again, you'll get a public government funded school, which by and large, both here in Australia and Canada is the majority of schools. So how you actually get into any one of those schools definitely differentiates based off of their model. I'm just throwing an example out there because I'm sitting in Sydney is Sydney Catholic schools. They have a number of schools underneath their network. That network management team who sit at the top of Sydney Catholic schools will absolutely influence some of the buying or purchase decisions, the resources that are available to and used for those schools in their network. And then likewise, at a smaller level, each school may have their own decision-making powers, and that will look very different. So that's a really important thing to know when you are designing a go-to-market strategy and how you approach each of these different schools or school networks. Just as a quick aside, similar in the United States, for example, but what's a really common thing to see in the states is school districts. The state of California, for example, doesn't look it on a map, but it's a huge state. There's a lot of young people. So to manage that population, California is subdivided into a number of different school districts. And any one school district will have influence and decision-making powers over all of the school's staff and students in that district. And those tend to be localized geographically. Sometimes if you can get into any one school district, and that district covers 15 individual schools, that's a really great way to get into 15 schools and let's just say 5,000 students, for example. But then there are schools that are entirely independent and operate completely alone. They individually will have their own decision-making process and buying powers. That's a far less scalable way to get into a number of schools and be used by a number of different young people. But those schools do exist. So it's looking at the schools that you're targeting. It's looking at the available school models in the space that you're in. We've designed go-to-market strategies here in Australia. We're certainly not moving over to the States anytime soon, but we've already started fleshing out what the go-to-market strategy will look like in America. And we've designed both a top-down and a bottom-up. Top-down being much more of working with school districts who represent a number of schools. Bottom-up is much more working with one school or one really influential educator who's going to use your product in their classroom or with their students design a really great best practice model, and that can actually filter up to a more management level decision-making process. But that's overseas, and that's very forward-thinking for us. That's the go-to-market strategy. Now, in terms of adoption and uptake in the classroom, as you can expect any subject, whether it's math or reading and writing, there's a required number of minutes or hours that an educator needs to be teaching those subjects in a classroom over the course of a week or a month. What really works for us is health subject matter. Here in Australia, it's typically called PDHPE. That is, at a really top level, a required syllabus subject. So the same as math, the same as reading and writing, whatever the case might be. Unfortunately, like I said, the syllabus really leans on physical health and activity, but as a whole, PDHPE is still a required subject matter. What we made sure is when we were designing the care co and the activities in the curriculum included in each one of our student user cards is that the curriculum on offer met curriculum requirements for the core syllabus. So every minute that a young person spends on the CARECO over the course of a day or a week contributes to the required amount of minutes a teacher needs to be engaging in health or PDHPE subject matter over the course of a week or a month. Unfortunately, health or PDHPE has far less weight 
on that monthly total. So only about six to 10% of teaching time is focused on health subject matter. If, for example, your classroom has a one-to-one tablet-to-student model and your class altogether spends 20 minutes on their tablets individually engaging with the care call, that's 20 minutes that day or that week that contributes towards teaching health or PDHPE. So for us, it's actually a really great way that we're equipping teachers with a designed lesson plan that contributes toward that required total. We're certainly not asking them to reinvent the wheel. We're not like, hey, just as an FYI, we know you need to teach social emotional literacy. Good luck. (laughs) How are you going to do that? How are you going to meet that minute or our minimum, it's up to you. We're actually giving them a way to do that. In terms of the uptake at an educator level, really great as well. We're giving them an evidence scalable way to meet that minute requirement. That's fantastic. It seems like you've got a really clear plan on what it is that you're trying to do and how you're going to do it and where you're going to go. What I'd like to know is where are you right now and what are your next steps for the CareCo? It's a good timing question, just because we are at such an exciting crux. There's so many things that are kicking off this year. So I do really expect 2023 to be, it'll be very fast paced for us, but very, very exciting. One of the key things that is happening right now is our software development team are actually duplicating the prototype that was already built. Many years ago, I had the idea about what the outcome would be, but didn't know what the solution actually looked like or how that would work for both educators and young people. So I built the prototype myself. I was able to do that on a low-code platform. And that meant that I was able to go through concept and idea validation and iterate it based off of feedback from people who work in the industry, not only in the classroom and educators, but also disability support workers, pediatric psychologists who work with young people between the ages of 5 and 12. Even though it was a prototype and it took about two and a half years of research and dev, came to what seemed to be a really strong product offer. Now, that's slightly different than maybe the traditional product development path that other startups would take. But in the classroom, the margin for error for new product development is zero. You know, it's it's a very high stakes and very challenging job to begin with. So we're in more of a B2C or business to consumer startup model. You can actually involve your older end customers in that development process, live, in the environment where they're meant to be using the product, that's great. And I respect that. But in a classroom with people as young as five, that is not necessarily a possibility. We did have to go through that process a little differently. So even though it feels like prototype version number 7,000, what we got at the end of that process was a really strong product offer. I'm still quite clear about that is still an MVP, but it does mean that when we started working with our software developers, they were able to take a really informed evidence-based prototype and just duplicate it into a more robust model. Certainly was happy to build a prototype on a low-code platform, but in terms of the actual tech itself, I wanted to make sure that it was robust enough to scale Australia-wide and for hopefully quite a few staff and young people as well. That's what the software development team is doing right now, which is exciting. We will then be taking that MVP to just five schools. It's our beta testing program. We had to be quite strategic about the schools we were in conversation with and ultimately we end up working with in that beta program is we wanted to make sure that each of the five schools not only represented a very different school or curriculum model, as I'm sure you can expect, a public government funded primary school is quite different in how they operate at every level than a high fee tuition paying school versus again, a specialist school 
that works with young people, let's say, who have autism spectrum disorder. Everything about that school environment and how they run the resources available to them are quite different. How a public government-funded school in far west central New South Wales uses and integrates the Care Co into their classroom will be very different than a private school where every single student has their own tablet or iPad. Vice versa. Again, if you're a specialist school and your young people all have a certain type of disability, everything about that school would be different. The student-to-teacher ratio will be different. The classroom design and curriculum model will be different. We wanted to make sure that the five beta schools represented five different school and student family demographics for us to come up with five different use cases so that when we do go live, what we will hopefully have developed is five best use cases for how each of these five very unique schools adopted and integrated the CareCo into their classrooms based off of the resources they had. And this is the next step that will be happening later this year is after that beta program is finalized, we will start offering our SAS licenses to the broader public or all education providers here in Australia. And so when we are publicly available and we've really launched, if a private tuition paying school comes down the road and they're like, oh yeah, we have a one-to-one tablet model, we're like, fantastic, your sister school XYZ did this. This is how they integrate it into their classroom. If a rural or remote-based public government-funded school is like, that's a great idea, we follow a small group learning model, we only have two to three tablets per classroom, etc. We're like, no problem. We have an example of a school who's exactly those or very similar types of resources. This is how they did it. So that's really, really important. So 2023, I'm really excited about it, but it is going to be a big year. Some of our full-time hires are coming on board. We are closing up our very first investment round. Only the first quarter of the year is done. It's nice that this is going to be a long holiday weekend because I can take a little time to not only rejuvenate, which is particularly important as the founder, I feel more responsibility to really hone in on that than ever because we're in the mental health space and I want to make sure that we're walking the walk and being the example of what we're trying to create. But also sometimes I think startup life moves so quickly and it's so fun and exciting, but it's very easy to stop and actually reflect on what has worked recently or what hasn't worked recently or the wins that you actually have over the course of a very small amount of time. And those things are really important. So I do really cherish this extra couple of days off to not just need to recoup and take some time offline and sleep, but also I can do all that other kind of reflection about what the last three months have entailed and also what the rest of the year will entail as well. Um, just, just a little bit earlier, actually, you mentioned that you were looking to make some hires. Now, what are these additional skills that you're looking for uh, at the CareCo? That's really quite important. I think something that I am incredibly hyper aware of and something I actually struggled with when I was crossing the bridge between idea and solution in education, pediatric psychology, social, emotional, mental health and well-being and a business because a tech startup that translates to anybody. It could be, you know, you could be developing medical hardware and technology You could be in financial technology. Do you know what I mean? But a tech startup really is at its core a business. Um, And then being a solutions provider in education and healthcare is different again. So translating those both and making them come together was challenging, I have to admit, especially when let's just say you're 
really, really, really well versed in psychology or education, whatever the case may be. Those are very industry specific terms and concepts and processes that you might be used to because you work in that space. But translating that into a business and then being able to translate that again into possible stakeholders, investors, hires, other employee members who might be so good at what they do, but don't come from the education or psychology space. That's really difficult. That is a really challenging thing to do. So trying to find the best middle ground as possible, that sweet spot of merging primary education, pediatric psychology and healthcare, and a tech startup as a business together. That, that was not an overnight process. I cannot stress that enough. That was a coming together of like you have never seen. We are bringing in those key hires. And right now that is from a tech startup lens. So bringing in a product manager, somebody who's already worked with another ed tech or another health tech, or they themselves have worked experience in those spaces. That's great because there's a level of introduction, seeing the key concepts, language, processes, key players that you won't have to go through. But what you're ultimately looking for is somebody who can own and manage the product development process. Likewise, a client success representative. That was a really important early hire for us because specifically in the education space, there definitely is a tech skills gap. You get people who are brilliant educators, but you know, they're not a technologist. And then likewise, you might have somebody who's newer to the education space who I'd be a younger generation. They might have been born and surrounded by technology from day one, but they haven't been in the primary education space in the classroom as long. We always want to make sure that the integration of the CareCo into the classroom is as seamless as possible for the educator because that's where a lot of software products have gone to die, is that it's a great idea, but if it's not easily adopted and integrated, it's you're just kind of dead in the water. So CX that can support that that process for us is really, really important. And That is really looking at it through a business lens. What does the product need? What does the sales cycle need? Like I said, we are going to launch with ostensibly an MVP. And yes, it was prototype version 7000 before it then was turned into the MVP. But that is still a new product that is still hopefully going to be growing and changing and evolving based off of real-time customer feedback and needs. So having a product manager who can do that for a tech startup really, really important. Something that I'm quite cognizant of is that, yes, I could build a prototype myself and what a great skill set to have because that's an expensive and arduous thing to do. But hopefully what I bring to this team is some level of strategic direction and leadership skill and also some level of personal and professional experience or subject matter expertise, both in the education and psychology spaces. But at the end of the day, I am not a product manager There is somebody out there who is a product manager and they know that landscape inside out and upside down. And even though the key terms and the players will be different in education than it is in the finance industry, being a product manager is what they are meant to do. I'm really aware of bringing in people who are so damn good at what they do, product management, CX, marketing, whatever the case might be, that skill could translate across a number of different startups, irreverent of which industry they work in. So That's what the next couple of months for us looks like. We've got an advisory board. We've got fantastic mentors who either represent the business side of things. So SaaS, mental health technology, impact investment in startups, and then the advisors who represent the industries that inform our product, psychology, primary education, et cetera. Those people are 
hugely important actual subject matter experts being able to run ideas and processes and have those really industry-specific conversations. Those are really, really important. I do think you should be surrounded by those people. But at the end of the day, the people you hire full-time in-house who are on the payroll are ultimately driving the business forward as well. So there's a lot. When I summarize it like this, I'm like, wow, there's a lot going on, isn't there? (laughs) Excellent. Okay. So with all of this work that you're doing, I understand that there's actually a few federal government-funded bodies like Beyond Blue and NBU who don't do the same thing, but they do also provide mental health support for students of all ages. So I'm wondering if there are any dream organizations like those, perhaps, that you might want to partner with, or any others, if you'd like to name them. Now, this is really shooting for gold here. This is like the unicorn, in my personal opinion only, I should say. Um, Yale University overseas They are certainly one of the higher education and research institutions that I would put on a pillar worldwide for not only research into young people and child studies, but also specifically child social emotional intelligence and health. The Yale Child Study Center, it's a branch of the Yale School of Medicine, and also the Yale Emotional Intelligence Center as well. They are doing long-term groundbreaking research into not only emotional health and well-being, but especially as it relates to very young people. One of the directors of one of those centers is kind of a world leader and expert in pediatric psychology and social emotional health and well-being. He's designed his own tool for social emotional assessment and diagnostics among very young people. So they're kind of my own like, oh, wow, like the pillar of people who are just the resources and experts they have access to are just extraordinary. So if they ever want to partner with us, you hit me up, I'm available. (laughs) But then likewise, you have to look at some of the other worldwide authorities in, I don't want to just say healthcare or well-being, but also that represent the best industries as us as a people, as, as, you know, humanity as a whole. For example, the UN, United Nations, and likewise, you have the World Health Organization. They've got their sustainable development goals. There's a real focus on mental health and well-being for one of the sustainable development goals that we're hoping to prop up and support. When you look at some of those really big global entities and the resources, the networks, the data sources that they have access to, that is one of those worldwide platforms that you can only dream of partnering with it, even the smallest way, because of their capacity to get the message out. So whether it's the message out about us as a solutions provider or anybody as a solutions provider, them as a key authority on the awareness of and problem solving in the mental health and young person mental health space is infinitely important. So those are like the, you know, the top of the top of the top. I could be invited to a WHO conference focusing on psychology as a whole and sit in the back row of the 10th arena and I would be happy. I would be happy. (laughs) Dreaming big, dreaming large. Can't fault the ambition, really. It sounds like you have a pretty clear idea of who you need on your side, both from an advisory perspective and as hires to actually help deliver the product. We've talked a lot about building the product, how it works, what the outcomes are that you want to see in mental health literacy with children and with their educators. I'd like to hear what you think about the grand vision, the actual outcome. So if everything pans out for you, what does the world look like? 100%. I can actually answer that quite succinctly. 
Because honestly, if every single thing turned out the way that I wanted it to, is genuinely, the Caracal feels like in many ways, the means by which we can get social emotional learning as built in to every single fundamental core curriculum worldwide as we do reading, writing, and math. That is literally the outcome that I want. I want it to be as an accepted core subject matter in every single syllabus, regardless of your school type, regardless of your location, or the students you work with, or school model. We would never send any young person to any school type and expect there to be no discussion at any age level about reading, <laughs> about math and numeracy. That is what I want. And if the CARECO is a way by which we can make that achievable for a lot of schools and educators, because it's one way that they can deliver this at an actionable level, 100% go for it. But, you know, 30 years from now, I do not want to be having the conversation that you can't imagine a world by which we would be like, you know, numeracy is not on the curriculum. We just don't. <laughs> we don't teach students how to count at this school. You know, that would never happen. And that's what I want, whether it's two years from now or 49 years from now. It is just as fundamental a core life skill as the physical health and hygiene practices we teach young people about washing their hands. That is not a controversial subject matter. That is never argued. No one's ever been like, why are we teaching them how to wash their hands? That is just not something we talk about. That is what I want. Fantastic. Let's say we fast forward to the 30-year, 49-year mark, and you've been successful in rolling this out to a whole number of schools worldwide, and you've had a generation or even multiple generations of kids go through this kind of learning. What do you think a mentally healthy world looks like? Oh my god. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? You know, this dials back to the very beginning of this conversation, so these are just hypotheses. But dialing back to the beginning of this conversation, when we talked about adverse childhood experiences, even in a mentally healthy world, we are people. Even with all of the social supports in the world, the early intervention practices in the world, there are going to be families and young people who need a lot more support than a traditional school or whatever the case might be can give them. And they will still end up at an alternative school provider and they may need the support from multiple support or service workers. And that's absolutely fine. We are people, you know, even with all of the early intervention and prevention in the world, there are still going to be people for which that doesn't meet their needs. And that's absolutely fine. I think that's important to acknowledge is it's never going to be perfect because humans aren't perfect. And even if we get in there at a young age, that's still not going to meet the needs of some people. But in the psychology space, all things considered equal, a young person who has two present healthy parents or guardians in the home, they know their basic fundamental needs at home are being met, like safety, security, food. They have peer relationships, you know, they have friends and positive social relationships. Those are protective factors. If 30 to 49 years from now, it all goes well. Every single school worldwide is teaching social emotional learning and habits as readily as they do reading and writing and math. It will be really interesting to see if that type of fundamental life skill learning at those key developmental ages can act as protective factors. So if we're teaching basic mental health hygiene and habits at a very young age and a young person has fewer protective factors at home, they might only have one parent or guardian relationship, 
there could be one of those adverse childhood experiences in the home. There might be domestic violence. Someone in their immediate family might be in the justice system. There could be substance abuse or addiction in the home. We know that those young people are at increased risk for mental health challenges. We know there are direct links between those experiences early in life and increased risks for abusive relationships, homelessness, poverty, substance abuse, and so forth. If really early life, social emotional learning could act as a protective factor, will that affect those, what we assume are inevitable outcomes? That will be really quite interesting. Because of that same line of thinking, if people are better equipped to handle those challenges and traumatic lived experiences, what will that look like in terms of the next couple of generations in homelessness? What will that look like in the next couple of generations and substance abuse disorder? Again, there's always going to be people who are struggling with those experiences, but will there be fewer of them if every single person is taught potentially protective factors from an earlier age? Maybe. Maybe. I, I would never say that, you know, we're out there solving hunger, we're solving homelessness, we're, you know, abolishing poverty. No. But it will be interesting to see. So in a sense, what you're trying to do is create a very large safety net in a way. So keeping that analogy in mind, because you're trying to scale this globally, what do you think you personally need to do to help stitch together this enormous safety net? Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at this as a two-sided answer, first and foremost, very self-focused. Me as a person, me as the leader of this team at this point, this village who's all working together to make this happen. Personally, I think it's really important. People don't talk about this, I think, nearly enough. But not only am I as a person who's always prioritized my whole health and well-being, whether that's physical health, social emotional health, what have you, that has always been one of my first and foremost priorities throughout the breadth of my life. And the role of a founder is quite demanding. You know, there's a lot, you're spread very thin, it's very exciting, and that's great, but it also is very challenging. So me as the founder, in terms of maintaining and prioritizing my health and well-being so that I can show up for others in hopefully the most effective and impactful sort of way, over a long period of time, that has to be sustainable. I think if you look at some of the big tech giants that have come about over the last, let's say, 10 to 15 years, and you know, I'm talking about the big tech providers, and we're, I think, early 2000s, especially the 2010s, we look at a tech bro in his early 20s who was sleeping under his desk because he couldn't afford rent and he hadn't slept in six days and he was up all night coding. And by and large, I think we've learned that over the long haul, that does not work. I'm not talking about the outcomes of their solutions or technology, but nobody can sustain that lifestyle for a long-term period without significant repercussions on their physical and mental health and well-being. I would say this of anybody who is in a job or any role in their life with a lot of responsibility and they want to show up as their best and most impactful self, to do that in a productive sort of way, you actually have to be coming from a really great place. The foundation under you individually has to be really solid. And by and large, that for me, looks like taking care of my physical and mental health and well-being. Exceptions to that happen. There are weekends, especially in this role in lifestyle and industry, you're going to have to work through the weekend. It happens. But that really does have to be the exception to the rule. Because if you are burnt out all of the time, how effective are you as a person, as a professional, as a leader of a really big team and a fast-growing and moving company? I don't know about you, but you know, I did experience burnout in my 20s. And I was wasn't helpful for me or anybody else. Do you know what I mean? Not a lot can happen from that place. That can't be 
me over the long run trying to do what I do each day because it just wouldn't happen. Not for me, at least. So that's one thing. And then us as a company, I would say possibly also a reflection of that. That's finding the right team who are value aligned. I've often said it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but I'm not in the position, nor am I interested in convincing anybody about the importance of one mental health or two young person mental health. If I have to really sell somebody on the importance of that, it's probably just not the right fit. Finding the right team who are absolutely value aligned, who are just like, oh yeah, of course, let's do this. Whichever way they contribute to this mission, whether they're a product manager or they work in psychology themselves. And also making sure they're people. They are people. I think sometimes in tech as well, you forget that people are people and you're asking them to work with you alongside you. You want that to be a positive working relationship. You want to get the best out of them. You want them to feel like they're delivering their best. That comes with considering people as people. And if you're asking somebody to work 7,000 hours a week and they're like, I haven't slept or been home in six days. No. What are you going to get out of that person? You're also not, not considering them as a human with a life outside of work and other relationships they need to maintain. So it's taking my level of prioritizing my own personal health and well-being and making sure that is offered out to everybody else who works with us as well. Because that's how you get the best out of people and how hopefully they feel like they're offering their best as well. That's how we're going to do this, Sean. That is important. Excellent. Leading by example with self-care, both individually and as a company. So I can think of a better way to wrap up the interview, Brianna. Thank you so much. Uh, the last thing that I'll get you to do is to share any social media or contact info in case anybody's interest was piqued by this conversation. Oh, please. At a company level, you can always jump over to our website. I'm sure it will be in the show notes, but thecareco.online. And we're actively starting to just roll out soon our full marketing presence on both Instagram and Facebook as well. We certainly are on LinkedIn, but probably the most active on LinkedIn as myself, as the founder of the CareCo. That is certainly a growing network and I've met just such fantastic and brilliant people. So if you want to connect with me individually, LinkedIn is probably the best way to do it. And if you want to follow along with the CareCo as a product and our mission and what that looks like, website, Facebook, or Instagram would be the best way to do that. It's at underscore the CareCo for technically Twitter, but we're maybe less active on there, Instagram and Facebook. And then on LinkedIn, you can just find me as Brianna McDonald, and it will say founder, The Care Co. Excellent. Thank you once again, Brianna. That's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm. Otherwise, subscribe and stay tuned to learn from tomorrow's heroes and what we've got is promise.